tonight on Arena. Eileen Walsh celebrates receiving the Maureen O'Hara Award at this year's Kerry Film Festival and director Stephen Kayak on his new documentary about Rock Hudson. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. In two thousand and eight, the Kerry International Film Festival launched the Maureen O'Hara Award for women that have excelled in film. Recipients to date include Saoirse Ronan, Jessie Buckley, Consolata Boyle, and Brenda Fricker. This year, the accolade goes to Corkbon actor Eileen Walsh, who has been forging a path in film, TV, and theatre for almost twenty-eight years. She first came to our attention with her breakthrough performance in Enda Walsh's Disco Pigs, later the, the role of the young Crispina in The Magdalene Sisters, and just this summer she played Clytemnestra in Marina Carr's Girl on an Altar at the Abbey Theatre. Delighted to be joined on the line now by Eileen Walsh. Congratulations, first of all, Eileen, uh, an illustrious band of sisters. Uh, you join with this achievement, it has to be said. Uh, but I believe the desire to be associated with Maureen O'Hara may well go back to the time of your first communion. I know. So, first of all, hello. Lovely to speak to you. Um, yeah, what an incredible group of women to be part of. Uh, so, when I um, uh, had my Holy Communion, I took some of that money and I, I bought a little um, brown outfit for myself. I had always an eye for fashion. It was quite a high beige. <laughs> anyway, uh, my mum and dad took us down to the quiet man house for a little day trip and I remember having the photograph taken and sitting on the little picnic bench outside I can only have been seven and thinking how amazing it was to be somewhere where that was used in a film um, and I remember when the word came through that uh, I had received the award it's the first image that came to my head because mm. my dad all drank some of the healthy water that was there from a spa nearby and I remember the smell of it was so disgusting and my dad persisted just going it's it's grand it's nice once you get past the smell it's nice (laughs) so it's such a vivid memory for me uh it's it's just a wonderful turn of the cycle Mm. really to to know like receive something that she was so involved with you know it's amazing so never mind all of the great uh, performances you've had on screen and stage for your family the maureen o'hara award is the one i can't tell you that the amount of times my mom and my sisters as well recently have kind of gone how proud would daddy be daddy would be amazed you Mm. know it's just uh, he it really uh, has brought an awful lot of things up for all of us it's gorgeous a lovely time yeah well it's good to be able to bring back memories like that uh, around around an event like this but at this year's kerry international film festival in fact you're involved in two features i think songs of blood and destiny and the Golden West. Tell me a little bit about Songs of Blood and Destiny, first of all, Eileen. That's right, yeah. So another Marina Carr little connection there. So Marina Carr wrote I Girl, that the wonderful mm. All One for Women. And then Trish McAdam has taken that and made this amazing piece that has um, a, a, some really lovely actors involved. So I came across and did uh, two or three days. Um, but it was really super intense, straight to camera, um, kind of repeating uh, uh, Marina's lines that are just so wonderful. Um, and so she has kind of used that footage and upended mm. it and done loads of kind of fantastic stuff with it. Um, so that's um, Blood and Destiny. Uh, and then The Golden West is uh, myself and the gorgeous Aoife Duffin with uh, a Welsh actor called Sean Iffan. And uh, it's the boys who did uh, An Irish Goodbye ah. that won an Oscar. Yeah, so Tom Berkeley and Ross White, uh, both of them directing um, myself and Aoife down in Snowdonia. It was breathing, but it's a real funny, uh, shocking little script, proper Martin McDonagh land. And uh, it's uh, us two. Oh, and a donkey. You know, you can't do a Martin McDonagh-esque without a little donkey being involved. Um, And uh, it's funny and brilliant and charming. And they shot it all on film. Wow. Which is so unheard of these days. And it's about 20 minutes long. So it's a real adventure for them as well. They've uh, done an amazing job. And did you so, do did, did they make this subsequent to um, An Irish Goodbye or was it in around the same time? It had, an Irish Goodbye was totally over and done when you when you made this, was it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. But it was only after we had finished and shot Golden West 
that we then heard the boys had been nominated. So, um, yeah, they um, they they very much had Irish goodbye in the bag and was off on, you know, all its little festival tours at that point. Um, but it was only after we had finished that then they got their Oscar nomination. So it was lovely to be involved with the little emails mm. back and forth uh, about all that. And on the night, willing them along, you know, so proud of them. It's amazing. And I guess it, it, that's bound to have, that they're winning the Oscar for an Irish Goodbye is bound to have a, a bit of a, an effect in terms of the interest that there will be in the Golden West. Yeah, I mean, I'd hope so. I'm sure for any young uh, uh, director and companies, you know, like to get the backing of an Oscar behind you, get some into rooms that are unheard of, you know. So, and I'm sure the Golden West will also get into uh, festivals because of, of that, mm. which is great. It can only be a positive thing, really, you know. Despite the fact that you were donning um, glamorous outfits with your with your first communion money, the decision to go to acting came relatively late, I think, Eileen. Well, um, it was because Catherine had gone off and done the uh, National Youth Theatre. This is your sister, um, Catherine, yeah. Yeah, who's in uh, the Druid shows at the moment. Mm. The Druid will kick me off and uh, they just finished in New York. And um, yeah, so she came back from doing the uh, um, uh, the National Youth Theatre and she came back and just insisted. She threw me into Saturday morning classes and went, that's where you need to be. And uh, we never looked back, really. I was about 13 or 14 and doing Saturday morning classes at the Crawford uh, with Geraldine O'Neill and um, loving my life, <laughs> writing poetry and everything was about cancer and AIDS at the time because the AIDS quilt was doing the rounds. Mm. So I was like heavily into that, angels in America and all that. Um, and then Geraldine made me be a washing machine one day. And so I suddenly discovered my funny bone. <laughs> so Catherine brought I, I did. She did throw me into the right room. Right. So it was it was being a washing machine that finally uh, <laughs> that was what did it for you. You thought this is my that's life. What, yeah, <laughs> that's what made me find my death. Sean. <laughs> um, you know, tw 28 years, which I kind of find extraordinary because it feels like five minutes ago that I first saw you oh, on stage. Um, and I, I think you have a daughter who's and who's interested currently in, in pursuing it. What's your attitude to yeah. that? Well, I guess, you know, like there would have been no stopping me mm. um, at 17. And she's 17 now, Tippy, And she took it upon herself uh, to send self-tapes to, and you know, my agent. And now they've taken her on. They've gone. She has something. And so I just think, you know what, sometimes it's hard as a parent to see them go into, you know, uh, a career that is, are so unknowing and scary and so judgmental and, you know, but at the same time, after the, um, you know, after going through COVID and everything mm. and lockdown, you might as well do something that makes you happy. You might as well have a passion. And, you know, I think uh, she's with um, Maureen and Eleanor, who are also my agent, and they always spoke to me about the long game. It's always about the long game. It's not about the here and now and the immediate. It's about your passion and that passion sustaining. Um, and really, you know, I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for them. And, uh, and, and the care that they've taken to get me this far, I think, you know. Yeah, because your uh, relationship with them was, in fact, right back to the time of your you being a 17-year-old. I think it was subsequent to it was your first theatre role, was it, with, yeah, with Gina Moxley? Gina Moxie's yeah. Dante Dan, which was revived recently. Um, oh, I know. Aaron Monaghan yeah. it. Uh, uh, so that Maureen McGlynn and and Eleanor first call management. You've been with Maureen since since that point in time. People often wonder about that relationship with with the agent. You know how much of it is they make the phone calls and phone you up and tell you here's the audition or here's the job job that you could go for. Was there more involved? Was there more of a kind of a, a management aspect to what Maureen and Eleanor did with you rather than simply here's the gig, here's the audition, get yourself I there. Mean I think sometimes, you know, it's really important that you find the right connection, that you find the right meet with you and your agent. You know, um, it's, it took me a lot longer to find that right meet in London. Um, and But Maureen and Eleanor have always been there to, 
you know, discuss things and kind of go, actually, this is where you need to be heading. And that was partly because I trusted them that we were able to have those open conversations and actually go, I don't know if I want to be seen for that. And then forcing me, actually, this is something you do need to self-tape for. I know you hate them. Just do it. And and they have been right. And I've had to kind of climb back down. Some things I've gone, I don't know if that's for me. That that fit doesn't feel right. And I've had to stand my ground a bit. But other times then they've been right. And you know what I mean? And I like having that mm. back and forth because it's about the quality of the work. Um, and uh, they're they're fierce when it comes to protecting me and the work and the choice that we make. In terms of that, you know, the old chestnut that is stage or screen, I mean, to to, to what extent can you make choices in, in that regard? You're talking about maybe, you know, saying, no, I'm not going to go for that, be it a, a screen role. Uh, and maybe I'm going to stick with the theatre piece or maybe I'm be, that's a romantic thought on my on my on my part. Maybe it is more straightforward that you, it doesn't matter what the medium is. You just have to go with what's right in your soul. Yeah. So sometimes, I mean, it takes a while to build a career, right? Mm. So sometimes, you know, I can't lie. Uh, when my babies were small, I was taking work that was coming in. Just keep it coming. Keep the mortgage paid. Keep it going. And then you hope to eventually get to a point where, you know, you've done enough work to get some bit of backup in the bank. And then you go, right, what makes me happy? What can I do? And to get to a point where you can do that, it's not easy and it's not available all the time. And one year is good and one year is not. But you know, certainly, you know, you get to a point where you can go, hang on, does this push me? Does this excite me? Is this something that I want to do? Am I willing to be away from my family? Mm. And, you know, all that kind of stuff. It has to really tick a lot of boxes. Um, But I'm very lucky with, you know, the writers that I do get to work with, the directors that I get to work with, that actually make it exciting and challenging, not just financially, good either you know what I mean it also just has to feed your soul that you can bring something to it and if if there is there a wish part or a wish role or a wish person to work with that that's in uh-huh. there in the back of your mind somewhere I mean yeah I mean there's all there's forever be you know uh I think I'd love theater wise um the boldness of taking on something massive like a Eugene O'Neill mm. you know something like that that you can kind of absorb and lose yourself in and then, I mean, at the moment, I'm I'm shooting a thing uh, that Chris O'Dowd has written called Small Town Big Story. And that's for Sky. And that's getting to work with, you know, Paddy Considine as my husband. Oh, lovely. So, it's, I'm, it's, I've got a pretty uh, big tick next to a wish list. You know, Christina Hendricks is also in that. And she's incredible. Uh, so, like... Uh, I'm I'm doing well. The bucket list is well and truly it's, getting it's kicked. Getting, it's getting kicked. What about um, <laughs> have you have you shot small things like these? This is a because we're speaking. Uh, we have a public interview, in fact, with Claire Keegan tomorrow night. We're coming live <gasps> from the pavilion in in, in theatre in Dunleary, talking about her her new book. In, you know, but um, we certainly will it's be an... talking about small things like these. You you reunited yes. with it brings you right back to the disco pigs days. Uh, disco yes. pigs days in theatre with Killian Murphy. You're on screen with him. What are you playing? In, uh, can you tell me what you're playing in small of things course. like these? Yeah, of course. So, Kill and I play husband and wife. Ah, you're the wife. Lovely. And, and uh, of course, to the adaptation. Mm. So, it's right back to Disco Pigs time. And it is nothing but love. Love. I cannot tell you. It was a dream job. Tim Mylands as a director, just wonderful producers on board. You know, it was really, um, I, it just came from a place of love. It was easy to shoot in the sense of it being um, a, a place of care. You know, it's a hard story and Claire, you know, doesn't write easy stuff. She mm. writes very truthful and very rooted. You know, they don't have to be happy. You're not happy all the time. That's not what makes a marriage. A marriage is time and effort and hard stuff. And I think that's what I love about Claire's writing the worlds she creates are worlds that we all know and lived through and you know for me there was huge resonances of my parents Mm. and I'm five girls and they are they are parents to five girls Uh, my dad was a coal man and you know it's very important to represent 
that. Was, was Claire involved in any way? Was she on set? Did she come down to visit or did you get to speak with her about any aspect uh, of the role? No, no, no. I never, I never did. But from what I know uh, um, from Tim um, and Enda is that, you know, she was very much involved in the in kind of okaying everything, mm. but then so allowed them to have carte blanche. You know, she was very open to her work um, once it was cared for, yeah. as far as I know. You know, um, and so I hope she's happy. I hope when she sees it, she's happy uh, because really it was done with such tenderness. Yeah. Um, and her new book is amazing. Yes, it her, is. It is. Tough, she's tough on her lead characters. I love it. You know, <laughs> she's relentless with men as well. She's just fantastic. Yeah. Um, Late in the Day was a wonderful book. I think I stopped everything. I just made a ma- a coffee and read it in one or yeah. it was amazing yeah. well listen Eileen I'm sure your your dad will be uh, celebrating up above for you this evening oh. and our, or since you, the getting of the award uh, heartiest yes. congratulations absolutely delighted Thanks. for you and, and may your success continue for another 28 years at the very <laughs> least at least <laughs> Thank you, Sean. On cheers. That's lovely. That's uh, Eileen Walsh, sir, who will be presented with the Maureen O'Hara Award at the Kerry International Film Festival when it takes place from Friday, October the 19th through until the 22nd. Songs of Blood and Destiny and The Golden West, both featuring Eileen, will be screened at the festival. You can get full details of everything else happening there on kerryfilmfestival.com. Rock Hudson, All That Heaven Allowed is a new documentary from Stephen Kayak, the director also responsible for films including Scott Walker, 30th Century Man and Stones in Exile. Rock Hudson was, of course, the quintessential Hollywood leading man, matinee idol of the 1950s and 60s, had the lightness of touch for comedy, especially with Doris Day as his co-star. He could also take on serious drama as in Giant alongside James Dean and Elizabeth Taylor. In the 70s and 80s, he was a regular on our TV screens. People will remember he played the lead in the hit TV series Macmillan and Wife. Then came the shock revelation in 1985, not long before his death, that Rock Hudson had AIDS. He news would news which would change the conversation and much more about that particular pandemic. Delighted that director Stephen Kayak joins me now on the line from London. You know, watching the documentary today, Stephen, it's it's kind of impossible to overstate the, the star that Rock Hudson was in his heyday and how he was just thought of as the quintessential all-American boy, all-American man. He really was. I mean, he was the Tom Cruise of his day, wasn't he? I mean, you couldn't get a a bigger, better, hunkier, more heterosexually presenting figure. I mean, he towered over romantic films and action films and uh, westerns. Everything. He really had it all. And th- that um, that heterosexuality and that kind of macho man was very much. We're, we're talking about the nineteen fifties, I suppose, when his career started to really ignite. That was a post-war desire within the the industry in Hollywood at the time. It really was. It's a fascinating study when you look at the the stars of the you know twenties into the thirties. You know, the more the dandy was sort of uh, you know in vogue. Uh, you think of Valentino and the like. But yeah, after the war, I mean, all the imagery, everything was telling us we wanted soldiers, we wanted fighters, we wanted he-men. And uh, yeah, the stars become, they butch it up big time. Uh, and, and Rock was literally like six foot five, square jawed, handsome as could be. Um, and uh, he just fit the mold better than almost anybody. Henry Wilson was a very important uh, agent for him, particularly in those early days and in... If, basically carving out the career that would that would fall into place for Rock Hudson. What was the nature of Henry Wilson's ability to see the star within Rock Hudson, first of all, and then put aside the fact that it was pretty well known amongst his circle of friends that he was uh, uh, was gay, but Henry Wilson, Henry Wilson was not going to let any of that get anywhere near any publicity. No, no, no. Henry's a really complicated character, you know, probably, you know, self-loathing homosexual himself. He had a real eye for the farm boys and the sailors who were all making their way to L.A. looking for fame. 
And, uh, you know, people used sex as currency and Henry traded on it. Uh, it was really transactional. And, uh, you know, we're sure him and Henry rolled around in the sack a little bit. You know, he spotted him at a party, as the rumor goes, and just it was a bullseye. He, he Rock was Henry's greatest creation. You know, Henry had a, a knack for crafting these crazy uh, stage names. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you think about it like Rock Hudson, it's almost laughable, but it just fit perfectly. He was like literally carved out of granite and uh, Henry ran with it. Yeah. Well, Roy very Fitz- powerful, very powerful agent. Yeah. Roy Fitzgerald was, of course, doesn't have quite the same ring to it, does it, no, as Rock Hudson? Does not. No, no. Even though there might be a bit of Irish or possibly Scots, I would guess, within the Fitzgerald uh, side of it and the Roy there for certain. But his his career did really take off. And what's ironic, and you, you do this so well in the film, Stephen, is that you actually use the films he was acting in to show us that he was actually often playing these characters who were wearing masks or who had double lives and when you see him acting those parts out within the context of his own life, they take on a whole new meaning, set of meanings. It's true. I mean, there are few, you know, actors, uh, actresses out there who, who re- whose careers really uh, benefit from that kind of a reading, especially when you're dealing with, you know, a hidden life. Uh, and a lot of gay lives of the 50s and 60s were lived in code, you know, for fear of exposure and, and ruination. So... Yeah, it's a fascinating study to just really examine them for any hint or clue. Sometimes the mask is on extremely uh, tightly, you know, and it shows no sign of cracking. But when he starts to play with it and you almost feel like the films are consciously starting to hint and reveal, that's when it becomes really uh, a fascinating uh, experience. Pillow Talk and Doris Day is, is a wonderful example of that. Maybe just give us the basic setup of that film and then we listen to a little section from within your documentary that that, that weaves in and out of the film itself and, and some okay. others talking about it. It's hilarious. I mean, you know, it's they play a char- characters who share a party line. That was a thing back in the day. There weren't enough phone lines. So they had to share a phone line and he's always on the phone seducing women and Doris just wants to make her business calls. And of course they start uh, a war. Uh, but then when they meet uh, sparks fly and he decides he's going to try to seduce her, but he does so by pretending to be an extremely effeminate man. And it's now Doris who must conquer him and show him that he, he must take her to bed. You know, it's yeah. uh it's it's quite funny. Yeah, you you couldn't make it up. It kind of springs to mind. Let's <laughs> let's listen to to the clip that features just that section, and we'll hear clips from Pillow Talk itself. We'll hear Doris State talking um, uh, in within the interview within this clip as well. We'll hear a little clip from an interview with Terry Wogan interviewing Rock Hudson and the film critic Tom. Pietro Santo and the voice of Armistead Mopan, a friend of the stars. So here is that section in and around Pillow Talk from the documentary film Rock Hudson, All That Heaven Allowed. Pillow Talk, Pillow Talk, another night I hear myself talk, 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 talk. Look, I don't know what's bothering you, but don't take your bedroom problems out on me. I have no bedroom problems. There's nothing in my bedroom that bothers me. Oh, that's too bad. Pillow talk seem seem very tame now by comparison with um, today's more explicit standards. We almost didn't do it because it was too dirty. What a marvelous looking man. I wonder if he's single. I don't know how long I can get away with this act. <laughs> you know, the deception is an interesting artifact of the times. You have a gay actor playing a straight man impersonating a possibly gay man. It's a house of mirrors. Tell me about your job. Must be very exciting working with all them colors and fabrics and all. In those Doris Day movies, he's always pretending to be gay in order to get Doris into bed. That's the joke, always. Why can't you get married? There we go. It's an extraordinary sequence that in and around <laughs> Pillow Talk. That's from the documentary film Rock Hudson, All That Haven't Allowed. And its director, Stephen Kayak, is with me on, on, on the programme this evening. 
and that's just one minute and 19 seconds around Pillow Talk. <laughs> but there are so many films that you that you visit within it, within the the, the, the documentary, Stephen, that, that, that show that in different ways, that, that it is quite extraordinary. Uh, when did the acting become even a possibility for, for Rock Hudson? He, did, he didn't come, am I right in thinking he didn't come from a, a kind of background that would have suggested that acting was a possible career? He didn't at all. I mean, he was he was a, a very tall and handsome farm boy who wanted out and wanted, uh, you know, to go to Hollywood and try to make it. You know, I think uh, the movies cast a spell. You know, he probably knew he was different from the other boys. Um, and he he yearned for it, but he could never articulate mm-hmm. it. As you say, we, you hear him say in the film, that if he even said to his parents, I wanted to be an actor, they'd say, well, that's sissy stuff. Go back to the fields and, you know, pick some potatoes yeah. or something. I mean, he really... He came from this very restrictive environment, so uh, but he just shows up, and it's really a force of will and the power of his his physique yeah. that really just cut through it all. And uh, the chance meeting with Wilson, um, I don't know. I'll, I'll, although how how chanceful it was, we'll never know. But yeah. he, he was extremely uh, determined, and we certainly get a sense that um, you know there were many relationships, one night stands, short flings, all of that throughout that period. Um, most of them with men, but there was a marriage to to Wilson's secretary, a kind of a sham marriage, it it would seem. And it, you know, it, where where the film really begins, to, you see the tragedy of it all is when he's diagnosed with AIDS. That was and and it's subsequent being told to the public. That was such a shock at the time. It was. I mean, people kind of shrug now. I mean, I, I think part of the reason for doing the film was to create a bit of a historical corrective to remind people of the shock of the times, like those early days of AIDS, no one knew what was going on. Like no one knew how you ca- caught it. There was very little in the way of actual diagnosis. Um, it was panic, mm. sheer terror. And to have someone like Rock Hudson be revealed uh, as having AIDS and being a gay man all at the same time. I mean, it was front page news around the world within minutes. I mean, he was that a significant a figure. Yeah, and and there is the, there's also a wonderful sequence within the film which deals within your documentary, which deals with his being part of Dynasty, the the TV series at the time, and there was a famous kiss in that with Linda Gray. He was diagnosed at the time, but it was I think he had been diagnosed at the time, but it wasn't public at that stage. She takes it in really good spirit. It has to be said. Yeah, Linda Evans. Uh, so Linda Evans, sorry. There. Chris, Crystal Carrington, yeah, they, uh, he, uh, against all advice, Lord knows what he was thinking, because uh, he was pretty uh, far gone at that stage. I mean, he, he still was able to show up and work, but you could really tell something was just not right with Rock mm-hmm. Hudson. And uh, even he, like, you know, we, we have diaries from his, his close friend, um, George Nader, also a fellow actor and gay man in Hollywood, who... Uh, you know, revealed it was, quote, like the worst day of his life mm. having to kiss Linda Evans because he didn't know, he just didn't know, you know, he he didn't yeah. know if he was transmitting it to her. But again, he, they go in and do the scene and he tried his best to, to make it okay for her is what she kind of says. Is, yeah, and I mean, you know, this, it, this fraught, closed mouth kiss and mm. they kept doing it over and over because there was, where was the romance? Where was the heat, yeah. the passion? He just couldn't go there. He was terrified. However, the, 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 when it became public that Rock Hudson had AIDS and in fact was dying of AIDS, that did change the attitude in many ways to the pandemic at the time and even changed the amount of research and the amount of money that was put into AIDS research at that time. It's the Rock Hudson effect. I mean, whether he was even conscious of making those decisions is kind of debatable and he may not have, but it's undeniable that uh, the news finally put the conversation into the mainstream. I mean, it was a really it was a small but very, very significant step in the trajectory of uh, the pandemic at that time, you know, and it really did allow people to yeah. raise a lot more money when it was really needed in those early days. It helped create Amfar, which Elizabeth Taylor ends up running, you know, one of the biggest, re, you know, yeah. funding organizations uh, for AIDS research. Well, it's a fascinating documentary for, for many aspects, not least of which is that uh, a last act of the documentary, if you like. But thanks so much for joining us this evening, Stephen, to talk about it. That's Stephen Kayak, director of Rock Hudson, All That Heaven Allowed, which will be released on digital platforms on October 23rd.
This week sees the release of Killers of the Flower Moon, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro and Lily Gladstone in Martin Scorsese's adaptation of David Grant's book covering the murders of the Indian Osage people at the hands of businessmen in 1920s Oklahoma. So tonight on Arena, we're looking back on the career of one of the film's stars, Leonardo DiCaprio. Winning that ticket, Rose, was the best thing that ever happened to me. It brought me to you. And I'm thankful for that, Rose. I'm thankful. The happiest days of my life was last year when I ran away from home. I didn't know where I was going. I just carried on. I've never seen such long and colored days. Hi, Ma. Hi. Listen, I need you to help me out, all right? I need you to give me some money. I need you to give me like five dollars, like t- like twenty dollars, like that, because I'm in some trouble. I'm not a doctor. I'm I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an airline pilot. I'm I'm nothing really. I'm just a kid who's in love with your daughter. It's so hard to make her understand. I've gotten all these things for her. I've gotten all these things for her. Now she just she just wants to run away. I defy you, stars! <laughs> you remember. It's the chance to build cathedrals, entire cities, things that never existed, things that couldn't exist in the real world. And you know, sometimes I, I get these ideas, these uh, crazy ideas about... Uh, <clears throat> Things that may not, things that may not really be there. Sometimes I truly fear that I'm losing my mind. A collection of clips there from films starring Leonardo DiCaprio, starting with Titanic. Then we had Total Eclipse, The Basketball Diaries, Catch Me If You Can, The Great Gatsby, Romeo and Juliet, Inception and The Aviator, all to the song I'm Kissing You by Desiree, which featured heavily, of course, in Romeo and Juliet on that soundtrack, the Baz Luhrmann film. With us this evening to discuss DiCaprio's career is Stephen Bendick. Just interesting listening to those clips that we just had there, Stephen. Yeah, there are some where we hear the... The, the, what you know, what I call the Stella moments, where you know in sure. the streetcar, where you get the big roar and the big shout from DiCaprio, rather like a uh, that's the, the character of, of Stanley in Streetcar. Yeah. But for the most part, what we got there, very contained, very yeah. vulnerable, vulnerable, and, and I'm saying low key, but that's not quite right. Melancholic. melancholy. Yeah, I think that, a, that's term. right. I mean, we're, we're if you were to give the top ten. Leonardo DiCaprio mm. scenes we'd all go for the big shouty ones as you're mm. saying but I think looking at the filmography in the last week or so uh, what struck me is the vulnerability of his characters and the number of times he dies at the end of the film it's also how he dies and why and also um, he, he not always but he has played dreamers on an, an interesting, mm. interesting number of occasions if you think So does he die without without hamming it up is that what you're well, talking no, about Well no he dies either sacrificially or tragically or mm. very very violently but it's not he doesn't go out in a blaze of glory all the time I mean yeah. Titanic it's a very very sad melancholic uh, mm. death into the icy depths but he also plays dreamers quite a bit I mean of the 28 or so films he's seven or eight times he's played dreamers and uh, you know The Great Gatsby would be one Can't You If You Can The Aviator where he played Howard Hughes Inception is all about dreams an early one on the CV there you mentioned a Total Eclipse where he plays the French poet Arthur Rimbaud and then even if you think about Jack in uh, Jack Dawson and Titanic he plays another dreamer as well and so I think what unlike all uh, many of DiCaprio's con- Hollywood contemporaries his screen persona is not indestructible he's not a superhero and I think that w- that's what makes him interesting mm. if you compare him to other other of his contemporaries, he's never played a superhero. As I said, he's never donned a cape or you um, done spandex, the spandex <laughs> thing. Okay, it, before he made Titanic, before he became a major star, he was offered the role of Robin in Batman and Batman Returns. He turned it down. After winning with Titanic, he turned down the Star Wars franchise. He turned down the Matrix franchise, and he turned down Spider Man. And I think that's a very very a risky choice if you compare him to his his contemporaries. Think of Johnny Depp. Robert Downey Jr., Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks. It's almost as if you're nothing without a franchise. uh, DiCaprio has never even made a sequel. 
Okay, so he's taking risks mm. on original material. If it's an adaptation of a book or if it's um, if it's based in real life, but it's an, it's an unproven event. And so I think he's got to be commended for taking those risks. And one of those, I suppose, uh, uh, relatively early risks would be what's eating Gilbert Grape. Yeah. Now, the really interesting thing about what's eating Gilbert Grape was he'd been uh, he was a young actor at the time. Hmm. He was still in his teens and he'd got it. He'd secured a very, very high profile talented agent with CAA, I think it was. And they had secured him an offer from Disney, a major Disney picture called Hocus Pocus. And he turned it down infuriating his agent almost to the point that he was fi- he was let go mm. almost and he was holding out for a role of 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 Arnie who um has uh, uh, autism autism in the in the movie What's Eating Gilbert Grape and he auditioned for that and he beat out Christian Bale for the role but even then um the director Lassie Holstrom said I won't cast Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie because he's too pretty and so he's got two things going against him now. He wants to play offbeat characters, but he's now face, he's now playing against yeah. how he looks. So the thing was, he, he donned a prosthetic to his face. He earned his first Academy Award nomination and that earned him Romeo and Juliet. And that led to the Titanic. All right. Well, let's have a listen to him in uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape uh, as that character of Arnie trying to comprehend his mother's death. Hey! Mama! 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 Wake up! You're hiding, huh? I know that. Wake up! Mama, wake up! Mama, stop it now! Stop, Mama! That's uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in the film What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Uh, we're looking back at his career uh, tonight because of the upcoming release of Killers of the Flower, Flower Moon. Um, Stephen Benedict with me in the studio. And I was asking you as that clip was playing, mm. was there any uh, was there pushback. any attitude or pushback at the time around his playing a character on the no, autism spectrum? No, I mean, this was 1993. It was mm. a very, very different climate than today. Mm. I don't know what the situation would be if, mm. they, were to re- if they were to make the film today and how they would cast it. But I think, I, you know, having researched his career and seen the reviews and seeing it online now, I don't, I've yet to come across anybody complaining or criticising his performance yeah. and saying, you know, it shouldn't have happened. D- Titanic, you mentioned that, you know, that Gilbert Grape led on to Romeo and, Romeo Juliet. and Juliet and that led to Titanic, which mm. was, you know, phenomenal blockbuster yeah. uh, uh, at the time. Um, but he almost didn't get that. Were there others in line? There were, yeah. I mean, Matthew McConaughey screen tested with Kate Winslet and he all but landed the role. But James Cameron wanted DiCaprio and DiCaprio at the same time was considering the role of Eddie Adams in Boogie Nights, which in keeping, which would have been more in keeping mm. with Leonardo DiCaprio's CV at the time. And he wasn't interested in the character of Jack Dawson in Titanic because he said there's no backstory. There's no, you know, there's no psychological conflict within him. There's no in, in, in sort of, he's not grappling with any existential mm. crisis. And James Cameron was very, very smart. He said, I know exactly how to lure DiCaprio into this role because he wanted the energy of DiCaprio, which is a very, very different energy from Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey is all laid back. Mm. Okay, so uh, Cameron said to him, he says, the thing about Jack Dawson is there's no edges to him. There's no props. There's no there's no twitches that you can hide behind. This is straight down the middle. And that's the challenge. And DiCaprio took the challenge because there was no props for him to hide behind, which I think was a very, very interesting thing to do. Yeah, um, although there was a, a lot of special effects oh, yeah. in that film, one yeah. has to say, yeah. I'm still, I still go back to a night, a night to remember as the one to okay. really think about <laughs> when it comes to Titanic. That's a different argument, yeah. which I'll push to the one side. Um, the, the sort of energy that he has uh, in 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 those in in what would what he that he would have had as Eddie Adams, yeah. for example, in Boogie Nights. I suppose that's what we get in films like Gangs of New York, sure. The Aviator, yeah. The Departed. 
all working with Martin Scorsese, of course. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why people compare him to Robert De Niro. Mm. And um, DiCaprio makes no bones about it. He's truly very, very deeply inspired by Robert De Niro because he actually worked with him when he was very, very young in a movie called This Boy's Life. And De Niro was very, very taken by him. But when what DiCaprio saw in De Niro was something he'd never seen before, which was the dedication to the craft and the complete, you know, the immersion in the role. And he's unfortunately compared to De Niro, but just because he's inspired by De Niro doesn't yeah. mean his performances would be like De Niro. There's two actors, I think, that uh, DiCaprio's career resembles much more closely. One is Warren Beatty. Now, we'll leave aside the Lothario reputation that Warren Beatty had before he married Annette Benning. But the thing is that Warren Beatty used his stardom to get movies made that otherwise wouldn't be mm. made. So he made um, Oscar-winning films like Bonnie and Clyde, Shampoo and Reds. And DiCaprio has done the same thing. If you think of The Aviator, The Wolf of Wall Street, Killers of the Flower Moon, none of them would have been made without him because he champions the script. Yeah, in fact, uh, we've texted in, uh, best role was The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, would you say that, that that was at the top end, sir? Well, I think the most, thing, most interesting thing about his character there in Wolf of Wall Street is there's no arc. He is he is exactly the same character at the beginning than he is mm. at the end. And that's a very, very hard thing for an actor to do. Once you nail him in the scene one, he's all the way through and there's no redeeming no redeeming um, facet yeah. in his personality. In that I know way. that you, the other character, the other actor that you would compare him to is Robert Redford and he, there are obvious comparisons there as well. well. Yeah, well, they made The Great Gatsby. They're, they're both very, very handsome, but also their dedication to environmental causes link the two yeah. very closely together. Uh, let's, uh, the, the, the clip that won, or the, the clip, the film that won DiCaprio an Oscar was The Revenant. And let's have a listen to a clip from that film. You're going to hear Tom Hardy first, then DiCaprio, and finally Ireland's own Donald Gleeson. Hi, you can quit polishing that rifle when I'm talking to you. I'm working on it. You can work on it later when I'm done talking to you. Look at me, Scout. That's enough! You're forgetting your place, boy. As far as I can tell, my place is right here on the smart end of this rifle. You move along, Fitzgerald. That's an order! There you are, a clip from The Revenant featuring Leonardo DiCaprio profiling him this evening ahead of the release this weekend of Killers of the Flower of the Moon. Um, finally, Stephen Benedict, how, what kind of clout does he have now? How, when you have Leonardo DiCaprio on your film, hmm. what does that mean? Enormous. Enormous. He's able to then secure directors. He goes after directors who are visionaries. He doesn't work with run-of-the-mill directors. Mm. He's looking for very unique voices. And so when he got Killers of the Flower Moon, or Wolf of Wall Street, for example, the, the studio got cold feet. Ridley Scott was attached to direct that at one point. The studio got cold feet. He walked away. DiCaprio then went turned to Scorsese. And he bought Scorsese. And he repeatedly, it's not that Scorsese works with DiCaprio. DiCaprio goes and secures Scorsese to secure Scorsese right. the huge budget that otherwise wouldn't be afforded to him. Uh, have interesting stuff and looking forward to uh, the new film when it comes out at the at the weekend. That's Stephen Benedict uh, looking back at the career of Leonardo DiCaprio. Killers of the Flower Moon released this week. We will be reviewing it on uh, Friday's programme um, this week. Uh, this or Thursday's programme. We'll be reviewing it on Thursday's programme. I do beg your party. pardon. Now, as you know, we are coming to you live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary tomorrow evening. I'll be interviewing Claire Keegan about her new book, So Late in the Day. And we'll also be looking back at works like Foster and small things like the, the live show is sold out, but you can listen to us live here on RT Radio 1 from 7pm. But if you fancy a jaunt to the sea in Dunleera, the following Friday week, October the 27th, we will also be there to announce the winners of the RT Short Story Competition 2023. We'll gather with the judges for this year's RT Short Story Competition, Claire Kilroy, Kathleen McMahon and Ferdia McConnell, and all 10 shortlisted writers for live music and extracts from the stories in live performance insights into the art of the short story and of course the announcement of the big prizes by the way all store all of the 10 stories are available to read now on rte.ie forward slash culture they will also be broadcast here on rte radio 1 at 11:20 every night as part of late date with Cahill Murray starting tonight with the turkish rug rug by natalie ryan let's have a taster of that story read here by andrew bennett well he asked voice both at once shy and defiant, hands on hips in a schoolboy stance. Gratefully distracted from the unpleasantness of the old wound, Helen returned to the problem quite literally laid out in front of her, the rug. It's nice, she said. I just don't know where to put it. We need something to warm up the bedroom, but it has to be plain, 
and matched the bedspread. You don't notice because I've been doing this a long time on my own, but every room has a flow to it. Samuel said nothing. Jaw tightening, he rolled the rug, dragged it into their bedroom and thrust it under his side of the mahogany bed. That's Andrew Bennett there reading The Turkish Rug by Natalie Ryan, one of ten stories chosen from about 1,700 entries to this year's RTE short story competition. Uh, judges Claire Kilroy, Ferdia McConnell and Catherine McMahon. Natalie Ryan, writer of that story, is with me in studio this evening. Congratulations, first of all, Natalie, on, on the shortlisting. Um, nice place to be, I would guess. Absolutely. Thank you, Sean. It's uh, a bit surreal, actually, sitting in here tonight, but absolutely delighted. Yeah, because I think this story was you kind of this was one where you were saying do you know what this is the last throw of the dice I think I was possibly being a bit uh, melodramatic when I said that but I was kind of I used to quip people were saying you know what what are you writing and my answer was always I'm in between rejections at the moment Um, but I probably wouldn't have thrown in the towel but I I had convinced myself that Mm. I wasn't going to bother anymore so let's talk a little bit about the story. Um, we got a sense of it there, that, that section, um, the character of Samuel, who has the temerity <laughs> to to buy a rug for his wife. It's a mistake. It is, yes. Um, well, the, the I suppose the catalyst of the story was mm. was the image of a, of a, a rug. It was a real life rug situation and... Uh, I suppose it just stayed in my mind. It was. But such you a saw powerful. a rug, or you saw. I a saw a rug in a household, and half of it was was spread out under a bed, and the metaphors just abounded. Um, and I just, like any of those things, stored it away. And um, then, when the time came to write the story, uh, I took myself off to Turkey, or I took Samuel off to Turkey, <laughs> and. Uh, and and and, and and took it from there. Of course, I mean, what we what we essentially we get is a look at what we thought was a reasonably good marriage um, between Samuel and his wife's name is Helen. Clean, Helen it's gone clean out of my head Samuel and Helen we, we, you know they seem to they're, they're very uh, comfortable they're very comfortably off and they've done well in life these rows are never about the rug they're never about who did the dish with they're never about the thing they're about no. they're about something else yes absolutely um, yeah I, I suppose I'm interested in the the power dynamics in in relationships and uh, I think in this case maybe Samuel is also looking at the the kind of the closing chapters of his Mm. life and looking back and has maybe made a few mistakes and and whether Helen forgives him or not I I don't know if, if Samuel has been able to forgive himself and that maybe has, has put him on the Part of it, because one of the things that impressed me most about the story was the fact that, you know, you, I find myself as a reader on both their sides <laughs> at different points along the way. You're fairly even-handed, it has to be said. Well, I, I kind of feel that, I mean, even I don't know what is really going on in Samuel and, mm. and Helen's relationship because nobody ever does. You know, you, it, sometimes I, I always have a feeling the more perfect it looks on the outside, you know, the, there's bodies under the pavement somewhere. You <laughs> or know. rugs under the bed. Or rugs under the bed, absolutely. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of felt, you know, they both had, like every argument, there's two mm. sides and they both had their their old histories and their old wounds. And, uh, yeah, I didn't want to to judge either, the, either of them. And even the children, I mean, we don't know what, what Samuel's children think of him, but it, Samuel himself perceives their mm. disappointment, mm. Um, whether that's true or not. Yeah, well, of know. course, it's unfair of either party to ask the children who's right, mummy yeah, or daddy. Absolutely, not absolutely. a fair. That's no, that no. is not a fair question. No, because it's always mummy. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about the, the the writing itself? I mean, you were saying you 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 consistently joked or constantly joked about um, being in between rejections. How long has serious writing been a part of your life? Um, I suppose. Serious writing in inverted commas, probably when I, I in 2010, I, went, I did a, a master's in creative writing in UCD um, with Eilish Nugivna, actually, who was one mm. of last year's judges. And uh, and then I won um, my first kind of short story prize that the following year. Um, and I was I was pregnant collecting that award. And I thought, oh, here we go. I'm on my way now. And uh, and three happy boys later, um kind of the writing then took a bit of a back seat. Yeah. So it's just, 
I suppose juggling the household and business and all, it's hard to justify sitting down to write when there's so much to do. Yeah, and what is it that you, you work in a business in Greystones? Yes, I have a boutique ad in, in Greystones, so I work in retail. All right, so you have a shop with people coming in every single exactly. day. A story walks through the door every five or ten minutes. Absolutely, but uh, I would like to say that uh, it's like the confession box, you know, no customers are ever uh, depicted in any of my stories. Yeah. They're all fictional characters. <laughs> totally fictional, because you, you still want to have the customers coming into your shop. Absolutely. Um, but, but, but Helen, I suppose, was an amalgam of... of a lot of women who, who would come in and kind of, mm. and some would be rolling their eyes and some would be nearly in tears talking about recently retired husbands or mm. partners and, and just the, the change in the dynamic and the change in, you know, in the pace of life and, uh, and, and you know, like that, people hanging around the house going, what, what, where are you going? And, you know, having to be accountable and <laughs> yes. that sort of thing. So that's yeah, kind of and, and I suppose that there is well. there is also that that aspect of, you know, what 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 do we talk about now? Yes. You know, the kids are the kids are brought up. We've got them all do, off doing their own things. The mortgage is paid. Yeah. We're relatively comfort so we're comfortable. So what's there to talk yes. about? And that's where I felt, I suppose, the rug um, as a metaphor for, you know, what we show of ourselves to the world and what we roll up and, and mm. hide under the bed. Um, and I suppose ideally in a relationship, you're able to show, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly. And um, I'm not sure in, in Samuel's case, he feels that he can. Yeah, he's in that place just yet. Um, what, so short stories to, to date, is there is there a longer form a story in you somewhere? Do you think is there a novel I, in there? I I I don't know. I did I did uh, have a novel and had an agent and and all of that, but it was never published. And uh, I took it out recently and read a bit and, and thanked God that it wasn't published. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'd like to I'd like to maybe have another crack at it. Well, listen, best of luck with that and indeed in the competition. Congratulations Thank on the shortlisting, and we'll see you on what Friday week, yes, isn't it? Out in the pavilion in Deliria. That's Natalie Ryan talking to me about her story, the Turkish rug, one of the. 10 shortlisted prize our uh, stories rather for this year's RTE short story competition in honour of Francis McManus it's going out on air you can hear the full story tonight on late date that'll be an exciting moment for you Natalie I'm sure uh, Cahill Murray at 11.20pm read by Andrew Bennett uh, it's all leading up to Arena's RTE short story special live programme from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary on Friday the 27th of October. I'll be telling you more about that in the coming days. But don't forget that we will be in the Pavilion Theatre tomorrow night, of course, live. The show is sold out, but you can listen to us live. Public interview with Claire Keegan. Really looking forward to talking to her about her most recent book and indeed some of the back catalogue as well. But that is our lot for this Monday evening. Paula Shields and Leah Murphy researched. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Ruth Kennington was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Reg Luby. So talk to you live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary tomorrow night. Till then, um, John Creedon will be with you after the news.